Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Scaling Up the U.S. Response to the Coup in Burma. Please welcome our host, Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in Heritage's Asian Studies Center. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation virtually. We're so glad that you can join us today for this important conversation. It's been almost six months since the, since the Burmese military ruthlessly overthrew the will of the Burmese people to carry out a coup. While the Biden administration has been swift in many regards with its response, there are still significant areas of policy in need of improvement. These policy areas enjoy strong bipartisan support and are areas where both the executive branch and Congress have important roles to play. There is a need in particular to one, increase sanctions, two, issue an atrocity determination for Rohingya, three, ensure adequate humanitarian assistance both inside and outside of the country, but in particular to the Burmese people and in light of the pandemic. Four, to extend safe haven to Rohingya and those fleeing the coup. And five, to work with key stakeholders like our allies in Europe and Asia. All of these areas should be done with the Burmese people in mind. According to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, in Burma, over 5,000 people have been forcibly detained by the Burmese military under the coup. And almost 1,000 individuals have died, including young children. To truly understand how dire the situation is in Burma, I think it is fitting for us to turn to the words of Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, uh, Shun Ning, who I'm going to read from right now. She says on Twitter, if you haven't experienced a coup by your country's military, you won't understand how we feel even if you try. Everything I look at doesn't have a future. Everything I look at, including kids, don't have a future. Everywhere I look is dark and closed. Anything and everything is possible under a coup. People live under fear. People live under uncertainty. Every day we hear casualties. Every night we fear more arrests. Every morning we worry whether our loved ones will come back home or not. We skip our heartbeats whenever we hear knocks at our doors. And there's this thing called survivor's guilt, which cannot be described with words. People are not living. People are just existing until they are killed. These words I think are emblematic of what's going on and helps us to better understand how dire the situation is in Burma. For those interested in learning more about what the U.S. can do in order to support Burmese people like Shin Ning, um, we're glad that you've joined the panel today. But also check out the resources that we have, um, such as the recent paper that I put out for Heritage on how the U.S. can scale up its response to the Burma, Burmese coup. And you can see that in a link that has been dropped into the chat. But without further ado, I would like to introduce you to our wonderful panel of experts that we have to speak today. Um, first, we'll hear from Marco Simons, who's the General Counsel for Earth Rights International. Then we'll hear from Weiwei Wei Niu, who's the founder and director of Women's Peace Network. 
We'll then hear from Mike Mitchell, who's a Burma activist, and John Sifton, who's no stranger to the heritage stage, um, who is Asia Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. As a final reminder to all of our online participants, we'll be taking question and answers from our audience at the end of the program. But you can submit your questions in the question box throughout the entirety of the program, and we'll do our best to ensure that we can answer them. So I'd like to now invite Marco Simons and John Sifton to join us virtually on the panel stage. Um, thank you, uh, Olivia, and to the Heritage Foundation for um, organizing this event. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about the, uh, the sanctions that the U.S. government has already responded to and what more can be done, especially in the context of the single largest source of revenue to the military regime which is uh, payments from a series of natural gas projects. So immediately after the coup, it was reported that the Treasury Department had blocked an attempt by the military regime to access approximately a billion dollars in an account held by the Central Bank of Myanmar in the United States. Um, and so that was an initial recognition that the assets of the government of Burma should not be available to this illegal military regime. Shortly thereafter, the president issued executive order uh, 14014, which created the, the current Burma sanctions regime um, and allowed for the blocking of property of individuals and entities involved in the, the military regime. Since then, a number of senior leaders of the coup and the military, as well as their families and associated business enterprises have been named uh, to the specially designated national list. This includes notably um, two major conglomerates that are controlled directly by the Burmese military, the Myanmar Economic Corporation and the Myanmar Economic Holding Limited, known as MEC and MEL, and several important state-owned enterprises, including the Myanmar Gems Enterprise, the Myanmar Timber Enterprise, and the Myanmar Pearl Enterprise. This, this pressure, as well as the domestic uh, pushback against the regime has had some effect on the finances of the military regime. The domestic economy has essentially collapsed, not because of sanctions pressure, but because of mismanagement by the military and because of the domestic civil disobedience movement in which hundreds of thousands of people have essentially walked off the job, especially public servants, servants in protest of the regime. This has led to what appears to be some degree of desperation uh, on the part of the regime and signs that they are increasingly feeling the financial crunch. So there, there have been reports two months ago, the Financial Times reported that the Central Bank of Myanmar essentially did not have the cash to cover deposits in private banks. And so they were basically rationing uh, this money out which is effectively stealing from private bank accounts to cover uh, governmental income. Um, one of the major, another major source of government income is uh, telecom contracts. And earlier this month, there were news reports that, that the regime had essentially prohibited foreign telecoms executives from leaving the country without permission. So they've basically resorted to effectively kidnapping foreign business executives. Um, however, to date, sanctions have not targeted the single largest income source to the regime. 
which are these revenues from natural gas projects that are primarily paid into the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, which is known as MOGE or MOGI. There are four of these projects and they are all primarily or exclusively for export. They provide a little bit of gas domestically, but mostly they provide gas to Thailand and China. And they significantly provide the single largest uh, foreign currency, hard currency revenue stream to the military regime. Now, the, the simplest option for the administration to take to attack these revenues would simply be to sanction MOGE, the Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, um, which they have yet to do. Um, that, that option would be a step in the right direction, but because the executive order is limited to US persons, it would not reach every oil company involved uh, in these projects. There is one US oil major, Chevron, that is part of the largest gas project, uh, but, but the other participants are foreign multinationals, including Total from France, and oil companies and gas companies from Thailand, China, Korea, and India. So for greater reach, there are additional options that Treasury could use to attack these income streams. And uh, some of these have been laid out in the paper that Olivia uh, referred to. The, the primary strategy that Treasury has at its disposal is to use its money laundering authorities, potentially in connection with the Justice Department as well. Because the US government has already recognized that the, the property and income that is, belongs to the government of Burma is not legitimately the property of this illegal military regime, essentially all transactions with the regime that involve property of the government of Burma can be characterized as misappropriation of, 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 uh, of state assets, of public, uh, public assets, essentially. And, and those participants in those, those transactions could be characterized as involved in a form of money laundering um, by providing assets for this illegal activity, essentially stealing the property of the people of Burma. This is the same, basically the same theory the Treasury applied in, in freezing the central bank accounts. And this would open up a whole raft of, of options, including information requests, as well as directly blocking transactions, including by, uh, including options to pressure foreign banks processing these transactions with the military regime. This would have a tremendous impact on uh, on the regime. There are some objections and counter arguments, which I'm happy to get into in the questions, uh, but, but my time uh, on this is up, so I'm going to turn it over to our next panelist. Thank you. Thank you, Marco, so much for that really comprehensive overview on various sanctions authorities that Treasury has at its disposal to ramp up sanctions. I'd now like to turn it over to Weiwei New to comment on the humanitarian situation and the atrocities that have been committed in the past. Thank you so much, Weiwei, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. It's an honor to join this discussion with all of you. Um, I completely ag agree with the Marco. We need uh, to boost and to step, to take further steps in terms of uh, sanctions. 
but at the same time, sanctions alone will not be uh, effective as effective as we 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 want to see. Um, so therefore, it should be come along with other types of actions, including um, establishing global arms embargo and ending impunity of the military uh, for the past crime for decades and for the current crimes. Um, the, um, and all of these actions have to be comprehensive and cohesive, and it should come alongside with the, in partnership with the allies, uh, the US allies uh, around the world. Um, so there are two ways. Yes, the US can mobilize other allies and partners to get on board on with this, with all of these actions comprehensively. At the same time, um, the US can take um, a leadership at the UN Security Council to adopt a binding resolution. So far, it has been six months. There has not been any effective or um, uh, any binding actions at, by the UN uh, UN in general or UN Security Council. What people of Myanmar want to see is a binding resolution at the UN Security Council that includes, of course, the sanctions, global arms embargo, and a referral of the situation to the International Criminal Court or creating of an a, 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 or establishing of a, an ad hoc tribunals for the for the crimes that military has been committed against the Rohingya and other ethnic communities in the past and ongoing crimes uh, that they be, continue to, to commit. Uh, so all of this has to come as a package. Uh, if not, you know, we will be prolonging the crisis in Burma and we will be seeing uh, further atrocities. Right now, with uh, knowing that the military, this military who staged the coup, is the people, the same people that committed genocide against the Rohingya. Uh, now we are witnessing the, the, the same military has been using similar tactics against, this, uh, the, against the entire country and continue to use their, uh, their, the, the brutal act against the people of Burma. And at the same time, the Rohingya and other ethnic minorities are extremely vulnerable uh, for uh, further atrocity crimes. Uh, if we cannot uh, take, if there is no comprehensive actions and if there is no uh, effective actions, then we will be uh, seeing further trustee crimes and prolonging the crisis and suffering of the people. Um, uh, as we know that as next month, August 25th, will be four years anniversary of the Rohingya genocide. Um, of course, uh, acknowledging that Rohingya has been suffering this genocidal campaign for decades, but the clearance operations, which led about 800,000 people to flee, to forcefully flee to Bangladesh in 2017, uh, August was happening August 2017. So next month will be four-year anniversary. The U.S. has done very little to bring justice and um, accountability for these survivors and, and victims, uh, apart from providing humanitarian aid. We cannot bring solutions to, but just merely providing humanitarian aid. We need to bring help. We need, we need to bring justice and accountability for these people. And the U.S. can help a lot. Unless U.S. help, we, I, we might not be able to get uh, justice at all for this victim. Therefore, the last thing the U.S. could do is designating Rohingya situations as genocides and making decisions on this genocide determinations. 
We know that Secretary, um, the, the Secretary of the United States has promised in his inaugural inaugural speech that the um, uh, in the uh, okay sorry, uh, he, um, he 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 actually promised that he is going to review and make determinations. So uh, we re we really hoping that um, within this month. Uh, before the anniversary of uh, four years anniversary, the de determinations will be made and it will be made public. Uh, that is the last, the, the, uh, a minimum uh, act that the U.S. can do to uh, to uh, protect these people or to um, to basically show their um, their empathies or their concerns against the uh, survivors and 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 victims. Um, and our community has been waiting for this decision. At the same time, the, today, you know, we have in the Bangladesh refugee camps, the, uh, there has been flood and, and constantly these refugees and but, but survivors are living under limbo and facing many forms of challenges from the natural disasters, uh, disasters floods and fire and all of these uh, situations to the human-made uh, in, insecurity and, and threat in the camps, as well as a Romanian Rohingya in Bangladesh, a Romanian Rohingya in Myanmar continue to face many uh, forms of discriminations, including uh, resumptions of all the discriminatory policies against the Rohingya. Uh, there has been, uh, since coup, there has been over 90 people arrested for traveling from Rakhine State to other places. And uh, the military has been, uh, continued to uh, impose all the restrictions that have been put in place against the Rohingya over the past uh, several decades. So what we need is really now, you know, knowing all of the upcoming danger and threat that the community will face, the United States to really take another level, another step, make the genocide determinations and take actions, all of these actions against the, uh, against the military. Uh, lastly, I would like to cover a little bit about the COVID-19 situation. Uh, the COVID-19 is adding another level of disaster, which we have ever never seen in any other region. It's worse than India now. Um, the military, it, the, with their poor management as well as deliberate restrictions uh, uh, on the PPE and oxygen, access to oxygen has been putting more pressure and creating more debt in, the, in Myanmar. So it's created another level of humanitarian crisis now. Every family has, uh, uh, has uh, every family is affected, uh, uh, infected by the by the COVID-19, and we are seeing not just older people in Myanmar, but younger people are dying. People like my age are dying. I just called um, a, a friend of mine, a lawyer representing 600 uh, 600 uh, political activist detainees in 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 um, um, in, in staying prison. I just talked to her before uh, while I was coming here. And the entire family is affected. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, they are going to be recovered. Uh, 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 so, uh, you know, it is it's really scary what is happening uh, here in Burma right now. Is we really need the U.S. take leadership on in providing the the humanitarian support, including COVID-19 uh, vaccinations and support, uh, the 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 help uh, aid uh, through the cross-border support. Uh, 
cross-border eight um, uh, channels, as well as you know, basically find innovative way to save people of Burma. Otherwise, uh, it is going to be a really, really um, a terrible situations in Myanmar. Um, I will end here. I'll be happy to receive uh, any uh, questions that you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Weiwei. You really covered the gamut there, very comprehensive coverage. I was especially grateful to hear about this real need for an atrocity determination. I think there was an acknowledgement that this needed to happen under the Trump administration right after it happened in August 2017. And now I think the ante is even further upped for the Biden administration to take that action to, and to call a spade a spade to say that genocide and crimes against humanity happened. Um, the UN has already said it, so the US should be saying it too. Um, so thank you for that. And I think that your remarks on COVID transitioned perfectly <laughs> into Mike's comments. So Mike, I would invite you to make your presentation. Thank you, Weiwei. Um, sadly so, sadly so. And if I could just walk, uh, next slide please. I could just uh, walk through uh, a couple of different uh, slides. Um, we know how this started on February 1st. Uh, what's interesting to note, uh, you know, um, is that uh, we talked about civil society and how virtually all of civil society is revolted against the regime. And uh, it's estimated that 80% of the doctors and healthcare workers uh, left their job uh, to join the CDM movement. Uh, next slide, please. And what we're watching here um, is actually uh, the military junta's war on a healthcare system. And uh, I think policymakers and, and others um, make, uh, make a, a mischaracterization when they say, well, there was, a, uh, there was an uprising, uh, there, was a, there, was a, um, there was a coup, there was an uprising, and oh, there's COVID-19. And in fact, uh, what I believe is going on is a, a very, very calculated campaign by the military junta to use COVID as a biological weapon against their, um, uh, their political opponents. Um, when uh, the, we've watched the highly coordinated and sustained attacks, not only on the Burmese people, but especially on that healthcare system, uh, including specifically its healthcare professionals, and it is calculated it is broad, it is wide, and it is deep. Um, according to best estimates, 400 doctors, at least 180 nurses, at least, uh, have outstanding arrest warrants, uh, 157 arrested, going through some numbers here, 32 wounded, and 12 murdered. Um, when we take, take a look at the, uh, the woman, who, uh, the doctor who was head of the, uh, the vaccine rollout, uh, she's been arrested, Dr. Tart, uh, Tartar Lin, uh, and her husband, as well as her seven-year-old son, uh, for high treason, uh, because she had the audacity to question uh, the how, how money was being spent and the process that was being put in place uh, by the junta. Um, at least 51 hospitals taken over by the military. Countless volunteer clinics have been attacked and shuttered. Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we've heard reports recently of sting operations against uh, doctors and medical staff, where the junta and their their security apparatus apparatus um, have uh, have called in uh, uh, fake COVID um, uh, fake COVID cases. So they show up at these clinics, then arrest the doctors, confiscate their PPE, steal the the life saving oxygen that the people need. 
and uh, and without question, it goes back to uh, to their hospitals. Um, next slide, please. Uh, I would encourage everybody out there, uh, you know, that's watching this. If there's one video that I think uh, epitomizes the attack on the healthcare system, uh, this was brought to us by RFA. Uh, go ahead. Uh, there's a link that's going to be put up in the chat room. Uh, take a look at it. It is absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. uh, attacks like this could not occur without the express permission, encouragement, and sanctioning of uh, of top uh, top military officials. Just could not. And uh, as I said, it's uh, it's it's absolutely horrific. Um, taking a look at the uh, uh, to to the right, um, you know, this is. We've seen this strategy play out before in Syria, uh, with the white hats, the barrel bombs, uh, you know, that were dropped on healthcare uh, healthcare clinics and hospitals in order to terrorize the population, in order to uh, to break, uh, you know, the system, fragile as it is, that's been that was put in place, uh, you know, to help save lives and uh, and indeed foster more death and destruction. And there's a very interesting Russian nexus here as well, both in Syria and uh, in Burma, and it needs to be looked at a whole lot more close, uh, closely to see if there's uh, you know, any cooperation or, uh, or cross-pollination of, uh, of these horrific ideas um, you know, that, uh, that both Syria and Burma share. Uh, next slide, please. And just quickly by the numbers, what we know, 945,000 people at least in need of aid, uh, close to 350,000 at least internally displaced, displaced and uh, at least 200,000 refugees uh, fleeing to border, border areas. And uh, this is the perfect Petri dish uh, for COVID. They're living in closely confined quarters in the jungles or these refugee camps uh, where COVID could spread very, very, very easily. And it is. Uh, next slide, please. Um, is there, uh, let's see here, uh, just one second. Um, and so is there a COVID-19 uh, crisis in Burma? Yes, it is, it is immediate, it is an emergency. Is there a deliberate strategy to use the virus as a weapon against the people? Absolutely. Uh, and what I believe we're watching here is a slow motion biological attack. Uh, you know, it's not like in Syria where we saw chemical weapons being used and you could very easily point to it and say, there's a chemical weapons attack and uh, weapons were used. Um, this is very slow motion, but it is being encouraged and sanctioned by the military junta. And when you look at this toxic mix, uh, when you destroy the healthcare system and its professionals, uh, when you continue attacking the civilian population, creating IDPs and massive uh, refugee flows. Um, when you control the medical uh, assistance and vaccine uh, and let COVID do its work killing the democratic opposition in a very, very, very evil way, it is, um, it's, an, it's a very elegant way to take care of the political opposition that the military um, faces. And then there's plausible deniability. It wasn't us, it was COVID. And all this, while well, the regime uh, creates a protective medical bubble around themselves and uh, and their uh, their cronies. Uh, with the impact on the region, I'll go through this very quickly. Um, 
it threatens tens of millions of people in neighboring countries. As we know, uh, COVID respects no borders, it respects no boundaries, especially the, uh, the Delta variant. Um, it, uh, it's a threat of tens of thousands of refugees flowing over borders, unvaccinated and in crisis, uh, represents a national security threat uh, to neighboring countries in the region. Um, if anything, it should force the region, ASEAN, China, India, Bangladesh, and the UN uh, to get serious and act. This is a regional, not just a crisis, it's an emergency. And um, the impact on Burma uh, immediately, it's the, uh, we're looking at uh, an attempt to destroy the democratic uh, uh, opposition and ethnic groups. It could likely leave hundreds of thousands dead. Uh, destruction of the, econom uh, the economy, the opposition and the people need to, uh, to survive. Uh, and it strengthens, strengthens the military's hold over the country. And over the longer term, um, destroying the healthcare system has consequences for all the Burmese far into the future. Uh, this was a, a very extremely fragile, in the best of times, healthcare system. Uh, it has been destroyed, except for the military junta and their supporters. It will, it will take decades to rebuild, if at all, and uh, it is a useful tool to control the political opposition. Um, I think uh, when we look at political approaches, you have a, a mix of uh, civil war, destruction of the healthcare sector, uh, COVID-19, um, IDPs, refugees, uh, thousands dying and uh, with no effect on the junta. Uh, many in the CDM movement don't want to take the vaccine because they don't trust the military, uh, which is a problem unto itself. And access for medical uh, and humanitarian assistance is, uh, to a large extent, dependent on the junta. And if there's any way forward, I think it's, it's imperative that the United States, it needs to take a very forward and aggressive posture in leading the international response to this campaign. I think it's fair to say if the United States doesn't lead, it's gonna get a whole lot worse before even it can get remotely better. Um, the uh, 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 senior, or I'm sorry, Special Rapporteur Tom Andrews uh, recently suggested a, uh, an emergency uh, Burma contact group. Um, I think, you know, ASEAN, despite, uh, despite the, the plan that they have in place, um, you know, to foster some sort of a political negotiation, that's, that's, that's in the rearview mirror at this point. If they don't act, if they don't step up, I think it's imperative that the U.S. Uh, establish this contact group and uh, move forward with like-minded countries, including China. Um, China has everything, everything to lose, uh, you know, as well as the other border countries, as well as uh, the whole of ASEAN in this, in that, um, uh, if it, it, as it is now, flashing over uh, into China, um, it's, it's, it's going to strain their resources. They, you know, they want stability. Uh, this is a hugely unstable situation. And, uh, you know, I think from a self-interest point of view, um, you know, if uh, there's going to be Olympic Games uh, held in six months, the Winter Olympics in, uh, in, in China, um, if they think this is going to be gone in six months, uh, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not. And, um, and so finally, um, two things, 
I think more sanctions. Uh, we're looking at the U.S. Congress to step up and pass the sanctions bill. It has yet to be introduced. Uh, Senator Cardin has been um, has been talking about one. We welcome his participation in this and uh, look for both swift House and Senate action. And um, and the junta has to pay a cost for their actions. And lastly, uh, in 2016, the, the UN and the UN Security Council passed Resolution 20, 2286. Uh, condemning attacks on me medical personnel in conflict areas. This at the time was in the context of, uh, of Syria. I think what we need to do is look for a restatement of that to help protect uh, the healthcare workers and others stop the violence. Thank you so much. Mm. Well, thank you, Mike, for that comprehensive overview of the dangers of COVID-19 in the Burmese context. I'm going to hand it over to John Sifton to go ahead and close us out for the for the program. So over to you, John. Thank you so much. I have a very uh, unreliable connection, so please let me know if you can't hear me. I'll switch to my phone, which is already connected. Um, I think we've heard all about the horrors and the difficulties of a policy response. Uh, I want to talk about some of the nuances and intricacies of the geopolitical situation and the political situation in Washington that make further action uh, on Burma more difficult. So right now, uh, I actually believe the Biden administration wants to do more to get more sanctions imposed on the entities that provide money to the Burmese military, as Marco uh, laid out as they do. Uh, and they would like to tighten the enforcement so that banking institutions you know, really do tie up and hold money that would otherwise go to the hunter. But we are faced with a situation where the Biden administration is seeking to be very multilateral, which is a good thing, it's a good thing. But in doing so, it is making it more difficult to get unilateral US action because the multilateralism is the goal. So the United States, for instance, would very much like to move ahead with methodologies to sanction gas revenue uh, without turning off gas flows uh, and hold the money that would go to the junta uh, in one way or another. But the government of France and some other European co countries are making it very difficult to impose similar sanctions in the European Union. And although US sanctions alone would actually work, um, the, the European Union, many member states, many governments in the European Union, and in particular France, view the idea of unilateral sanctions by the US with multilateral, sorry, they view the um, unilateral sanctioning by the United States with extraterritorial enforcement, which you can do because these are US dollar transactions and um, require correspondent banks in the United States to settle them. They very much do not like that methodology. They have an ideological opposition to it. And I think it needs to be respected why. I mean, yes, the US economy is the world's economy and is the backbone of the US and international banking system. That's just a reality. But at the same time, these are sovereign states that resent uh, having US sanctions be applied to their companies, their individual, their citizens um, without you know, their say so. So they very much um, 
insist that any sanctions on Burma be coordinated with them so that they are also sanctioning, so that the sanctioning is not done by the United States, but by the United States and Europe and others. So really when we talk about pushing the Biden administration to do more, and this isn't just about sanctions, but also enforcement, what we're really asking is for the administration to do more diplomacy and more geopolitical hard work with EU countries and the governments of South Korea and Japan, Singapore, where many banks are located to process payments to the junta. Thailand is a key, key, key country in all of this because they are the primary purchaser through their state-owned enterprise, um, gas enterprise of, of gas because so many other transactions occur in Thailand, because so many other um, revenue streams, including timber and valuable teak wood and gemstones and jade, you know, move through Thailand. Uh, and because it's a neighboring country that you know, has a relationship military to military and government to government, Thailand's a key actor here. So you know, once you clear the France hurdle, there's then the Thailand hurdle. There's a lot of work that needs to be done by the Biden administration in reaching out to these countries and getting their sign in, um, sign up, you know, for multilateral action, better multilateral action. Uh, ASEAN is over. I mean, ASEAN, we can pay lip service to it, but make no mistake, it's not a block. It's not an entity that does things. It has individual member states who in the ASEAN forum can be effective on Burma and act as envoys to the junta and deliver messages to them about what they need to do in order to have sanctions you know, relieved uh, and what will happen to them if they don't. And they could play a role in garnering more international support at the Security Council for some of the actions that Weiwei mentioned and so on and so forth. But this, make no mistake, this is not going anywhere. There's, there's no bus that ASEAN is that is going anywhere. We, we have to move on beyond that and recognize that it is multi, lateral action by the United States together with the EU, Japan, South Korea, and others, and Thailand is very important too, that will get us what we need, which is more punitive action on the junta that make it recognize that it can't continue down this path and that it has to look for the so-called off-ramp, that it has to look for a new direction, uh, which doesn't involve all the abuses and stamping out of democracy. So. That's basically the thing we have before us. How can members of Congress and others in Washington you know, make that happen? Well, it's simple. I think mainly through pestering and haranguing. I know there's some State Department people here, so I, please forgive me, but just reminding the administration again and again, whether it's the National Security Council, in the Department of State, or the Department of Treasury, which processes so many sanctions issues and enforcement, just continuing to ask, why can't we get this going? And mentioning, you know, appreciation that there are blockages because of other governments and that more uh, work needs to be done with that. And but by the way, the State Department isn't the only diplomatic game in town. Members of Congress can contact the French embassy in Washington. Members of Congress can play their own diplomatic roles, uh, as can others. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I don't think it's all just telling the administration to do more. It's telling the administration to do more, not just on Burma, but on allies. So that's how I wanted to basically round that out because it's a little bit 
um, different than a lot of situations where we are making recommendations, where it's usually just about the United States doing something. This is about the United States doing something vis-a-vis -vis its partners, uh, and that's the challenge that we have before us. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip off discussion of the Security Council and the Human Rights Council, but you know those are very important issues. Uh, I think Weiwei laid out what needs to happen. It's extraordinarily difficult to imagine Russia or China allowing some of those things to happen, but having discussions of accountability and arms embargoes in the atmosphere, having it in the air, so to speak, is very important. And so Security Council debate, if, if there can be no resolution, remains extraordinarily important. Uh, but how to get that to happen, I, we can address that more, I suppose, in the question. Well, thank you, John, for uh, closing out our, our formal panel discussion here. Um, I think that it was really apropos of you to point out that it's not only the U.S. as an actor, but the U.S. acting in leadership and trying to get other allies and partners and stakeholders to, um, to come alongside. I think that came up in pretty much everybody's comments here. Um, I'm going to take moderator's prerogative, and I'm actually going to modify the original question I was going to ask. My original question I was going to ask was if there was one thing the Biden administration could do today that you think would make the biggest difference, what would it be? But I want to open it up also to Biden administration in concert with allies and partners around the globe. So I think uh, maybe if we can just go in the order of speakers, Marco first, then Weiwei, then Mike, and then John, and then we'll go ahead and take some questions from the audience. Um, so Marco, over to you. What can the Biden administration and, and allies or, or Congress or stakeholders do that would make the biggest difference today? Yeah, so I'll go back to, to what I said earlier, which I think um, jives with your paper, Olivia, which is I think taking steps to make clear that uh, transactions that provide funds to this military regime, especially funds that legally belong to the government of Burma, which this regime is not. This is an armed, basically an armed criminal gang that has taken control of the machinery of state, but it is not the government of Burma. Um, that those transactions should be characterized as illegal transactions um, and all of the tools in support of, of that characterization should be used to stop. Excellent. Thanks, Marco. Weiwei? Uh, thank you, Olivia. So I think I've laid out what the administrations can do in my presentation, in my earlier remark. I want to address one thing, which is the, 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 the strategy and the thinking of the uh, administrations, uh, the, the U.S. administration, the Biden administration. So over the past uh, one decade during this political opening, there is a thinking that the uh, the the pressure and the sanctions the against the government Burmese government would put them into the corner and perhaps at that time would lead uh, would um, would lead to a military coup that was the argument so that therefore the uh, the sanctions and any sort of pressures against the military was uh, somehow very very um, uh, sensitive and they didn't want to. Uh, take actions or sanctions against the military for the crimes. Uh, but uh, getting in, being involved in some of the discussions this day, I feel like the Biden administration is having the similar views. You know, the, the sanctions uh, would put the military or uh, stronger pressure would push the military to the corner. 
and uh, and there is a fear of not uh, the military coup anymore. That there is a fear of I think we share the same fear in the past as well, like losing Burma to China. So I think, uh, and as long as you win the heart of the heart of the people, people of Burma, you would never lose Burma to China. What you need is support the Burmese people and the calls of for, from the Burmese people. I think that what thinking has to shift now within this administration. So that is one thing, very important thing that I would like to bring up here. Uh, at the same time, uh, the issue of Rohingya. Uh, over the past 10 years, uh, the issue of uh, Rohingya has been seen as an isolated or approached as an isolated manner and uh, and at seen, see, has, has been addressed as an as an isolated issue. So now, you know, for us, you know, people from Burma, knowing what the military is capable of doing and their approach and their strategy, understanding their psyche and their act in general, this is not something that an isolated issue. This is all of these crimes and the military behavior today is connected. We cannot address the issue separately, ethnic issues, Rohingyas issue, peace issues, peace, peace, peace talk, and democracy uh, uh, transition separately. And all of this has to think in a, in a more uh, uh, comprehensive manner and, and, and address together at the same time. So I, I would just like to, uh, I guess, you know, put up there and that will be more helpful for, for help to, to uh, in terms of helping Burmese people and bring, you know, helping us uh, obtain freedom and justice for people of Burma. I love that you pointed out the irony of the thinking that the worst case scenario would be pushing into the hands of China or some sort of a coup. And the coup took place at a point in time where US sanctions were at an all time low for Burma. Yeah. So the opposite was true. Totally. So I love that you're pointing out that sort of, and it's, it's not unique to the Biden administration. This no. is Congress, this is folks um, throughout several administrations who have used that line. Yeah, I mean, thank you for pointing that time, out. If you don't change the, the, the thinking, the strategy, you know, when are you going to change it? And we're not gonna make anything, you know, with the <laughs> old same thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Mike, over to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the patient, I mean, Burma definitely, uh, it's it's the triage that needs to be done across such a wide front. Um, and I think everybody spoke uh, rather eloquently about um, about what that needs to, uh, what, what shape and form it needs to take. But I think the administration, if they could just call it like they see it, um, you know, especially with regard to uh, to COVID, that is ripping through the country. Uh, it is going to take uh, a tremendous amount of leadership, both uh, visibly and um, and behind closed doors, with countries like China, with countries like Russia, uh, with uh, with neighboring states. And um, you know, I think that uh, the hammer definitely needs to get dropped on uh, on Mogi, which can't take place, as uh, John explained, without. An awful lot of uh, diplomatic preparation, and so it's just going to take a tremendous amount of effort moving forward. Um, that needs to uh, that needs to be prioritized. Yeah, there's a big need for political will from exactly. all corners of uh -huh. of the world. John, um, your final thoughts there? <laughs> yeah, agree. And I think what Weiwei said was very important about the whole combination of all of the measures and the diplomatic 
isolation and, and everything else together is our only hope for behavioral change. Instead of looking at whether you know, this sanction or that sanction worked, uh, an unnamed Ministry of Foreign Affairs official in the European Union recently told us, well, we wanted to just take the summer as a break to see what effects the sanctions we've already opposed you know, will have. That's the wrong way of thinking because the, the point is to bring the hammer down and change the game, change the psychological situation of the Burmese junta leadership, both individually and collectively. That's how this is done. And are, will, it, will it happen because of one thing or another? We're not exactly sure. We don't know a lot of, exactly about the financial health of the Burmese military as an economic entity. But there are suggestions, and my personal theory is that they were broke, which is one of the reasons the coup happened. One of them, there were many. Uh, if that's true, if they were losing money, have no money, then you know, real strong economic sanctions on their largest source of foreign revenue is the kind of thing that you need to be focused on like a laser. And unfortunately, that's not what we have. Um, so yeah, I could focus on that first and say the single biggest thing President Biden could do is call Emmanuel Macron and convince him to allow the EU to push forward on you know joint sanctions that we get the gas from. But then you know he'd also have to call up Prayuth in Thailand, the Prime Minister of Thailand, and figure out how they're going to diplomatically finesse that. But the point is to elevate it, and the president obviously has enormous amounts of things on his plate. But I mention him because it's at that level that this decision needs to get made. This isn't something where an assistant secretary of state can call somebody in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This is state to state, head of state to head of state action that is required. And of course, you know, it's hard to get that type of thing in a world which is on fire, literally and uh, figuratively right now. So, you know, we understand bandwidth issues, but if you want to get the kind of effect that we're seeking, that's what needs to happen. Thank you, John. So we have our uh, program coordinator, Justin Ree here, and he's going to help facilitate. I think we probably only have time for maybe one question. Um, so he's going to help us uh, and ask the question. So Justin, over to you. Hi, uh, we have a lot of excellent questions, but um, one question is, uh, what role is there for Congress to play in responding to the coup? And what can they do now? Is there anybody who wants to take that one first? Marco, sorry. Nope. <laughs> yeah, just. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Marco, over to you. I, I think you're on mute. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, so just just briefly, uh, Congress can take steps to increase the authority that the administration has um, to to act in in this regard. Right now, the the president is is relying primarily on authority, sanctions authority under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act or IEPA, um, which provides a tremendous array of tools to the administration. But it's not unlimited. It's not. Um, 
you know, that there are there are additional steps that Congress could take, um, especially to promote the idea that, that has been asked for by hundreds of civil society groups within Burma to essentially create an escrow system where any transactions that, that should be paid to the government of Burma should be paid into escrow accounts um, that are held in trust until such time as a civilian government can be restored, um, rather than paying those, those, those funds over uh, to the military regime right now. Um, it, it's possible that could be done under IEPA, but Congress could, could much more easily clarify the authority um, and, and make it easier for the administration to act in that regard. Thank you, Marco. Michael, Mike, I think you had some. Yeah, uh, very quickly. Um, it's it's uh, Congress. If there's one bipartisan issue, foreign policy issue, uh, you know, throughout the, the past couple of decades, uh, Burma has been it. Uh, you have, you know, in the Senate, uh, everybody from Dick Durbin, uh, you know, to uh, to Mitch McConnell, um, you know, who have been, uh, you know, actively and personally interested in, in involved. And so it's going to be Congress to run checks with the administration, you know, push at times, uh, cooperate at times, uh, and and it, as uh, as John said, you know, it's it's not just to uh, you know to to the White House, but they also uh, you know have a role in uh, in reaching out to uh, to foreign embassies here that can be uh, uh, you know that can be interlocutors as well, and so it's it's just more forward leaning. More act, uh, more attention, more activity. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, John, um, you yeah, all of that. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. All of that. Um, I would only add that you know, the president already has immense powers to act, but Congress could give him more money, give the State Department more money to both give out to civil society that is gathering information and assisting refugees, um, helping people escape. Uh, they could give more money for fact-finding so that international organizations, the United Nations, special mechanisms, or other international organizations or local organizations have more money to collect information and evidence for the use of accountability at a later point, hopefully. Um, they could also impose bans on imports of certain goods because right now um, the executive order focuses on asset blocking, but doesn't have uh, the capacity to do things like ban the imports of jade, gemstones, rubies, um, or teak and things like that. So you could tighten that up. You could give more money to the Treasury Department and Customs and Bureau protection, much as we wouldn't want that for other reasons in Human Rights Watch, give them more money for uh, enforcement of bans on goods that are produced by forced labor, or goods that are produced in a way that is unsustainable environmentally, the Lacey Act, uh, you know, the U.S. law. There are all kinds of ways you can make it easier for the administration to bring the economic pain to the Burmese military. So, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done, but make no mistake, the president has immense powers already. So that's why I often, when asked by congressional staffers, point to the need for just, just harassing the administration as much as possible. I, I don't know what other word to use um, for more action, because I think that has a really big effect. You know, when senators are 
are calling again and again, the chief of staff, deputy chief of staff, or secretary of state, that has an impact. And I think it helps a lot. Yeah, well, I think it's so great that we have such a wonderful system of checks and balances that reinforce each other and hold accountable in order to make good policy decisions going forward. So I'm glad that we got to cover both executive branch and legislative branch efforts, as well as the role of the international community in responding to the coup. I don't know about you all, but I, I leave the conversation thinking that there's a lot more that can be done. So if policymakers are sitting there wondering what can be done, there's definitely a lot of steps that can be taken. Thank you to everybody for joining us online. Uh, we have a few people in person here too, which is wonderful. Um, but we're just so grateful for the time that you took and that you stuck with us for an extra 10 minutes here. But um, thank you to our panelists and thank you to everybody who joined us. Have a wonderful day.